This podcast of Adams on Agriculture is brought to you by BASF. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thank you for joining us. Hope you're having a good day. Thanks for letting us be part of your day. Here's what we're going to talk about today. We have uh, the numbers in for last year when it comes to meat exports. We're going to talk with the uh, president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, Dan Hallstrom, to go over those numbers. We're also going to be talking about uh, trade and some of the uh, things in the president's budget proposal for agriculture. We'll talk about those things with Ryan Finley, CEO of the American Soybean Association, coming up on today's program and we're going to discuss the ag economy today been a lot of headlines about uh, the number of farm bankruptcies being up we're going to talk with the director of the center for agricultural law and taxation at iowa state university we'll talk about bankruptcies and are those headlines misleading or what should we be thinking about when it look when we look at the ag economy now as compared to the 80s we'll get into all that coming up a little bit later on in the program but starting things off with a look at the news we're joined by jerry hagstrom with the hagstrom report who's on his way to capitol hill jerry oh, you got hearings there to cover today uh, yes, there are three different hearings that I'm going to cover. I'm hoping you can hear me. I'm sitting in a subway station on the way. The train should, there the train goes now, so it should be better. Uh, the first here I am, I'm going to attend is one on the child nutrition program. That includes the school lunch program. Those programs were not reauthorized, uh, in the last Congress because the House and the Senate couldn't agree. Uh, the Senate did come up with a bill. Now the House uh, Education and Labor Committee is holding a hearing this morning. Then there's one on rural broadband and also a hearing on with the Inspector General of the USDA, which usually brings up whatever the big problems are at USDA. Well, we'll look forward to talking next time we talk, uh, hearing uh, about those hearings and uh, what you learned at those. Uh, right now, there's a lot of buzz about the administration's budget proposal. And, of course, uh, we have to kind of keep in mind this is a proposal, and it's uh, certainly not going to be what actually goes into effect. But it does give you an idea of what the administration would like to see and what's, of course, catching the eye of many in agriculture is basically a reopening of uh, the farm bill to some things like crop insurance, which would make uh, crop insurance more uh, costly to farmers. That's certainly right at the top of the list of things getting people's attention today. Yes, it certainly is. But what I noticed about this budget proposal is that I didn't see anything new in it. These were all cuts that the Trump administration has opposed in the past, proposed in the past and that Congress has rejected. So I'm not really expecting this uh, to go anywhere. Unless, of course, President Trump were to say that he would veto an agricultural uh, appropriations bill if it didn't contain those cuts. That's really the only way that these cuts become law. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. It does provide a lot of uh, fodder for debate, that's for sure, and we'll be hearing a lot of discussion about it and as we go forward. Hey, you were, last week, you were at the National Farmers Union Convention, and I talked last week with Roger Johnson, president of National Farmers Union, about the uh, idea basically of uh, going back to some sort of a voluntary set-aside program again. Uh, tell us what you heard out there. Uh, well, yes, there, there's a lot of talk at, farm, uh, at Farmers Union about the fact that there is the, that the current farm bill has no programs 
to to uh, encourage farmers not to grow so much. Uh, you know, in the past, I would say before 1996, when there were uh, on the old folk farm program, when when we got too big a supply, they would uh, the government would encourage people to to pull back. But now there isn't any way to do that. I'm not sure how that would work because today, of course, we have so much competition from production in other countries. Uh, and so whether we would, you know, really uh, help ourselves by cutting back, uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, of course, there's always a possibility of increasing the size of the Conservation Reserve Program, uh, which will go up a little bit under the, under the new Farm Bill. Uh, but that's the only practical solution that I know. Yeah, I think the reaction of many uh, to some sort of a set-aside program would be, we've tried that before. Right, right. And the world has simply changed. When you think about the competition from the Black Sea and Brazil, uh, uh, even on some things on India and Russia, uh, I just, uh, <clears throat> I would, uh, I don't think you'd find, uh, I don't think you'd find the program very successful, but also I don't think you'd find Congress willing to uh, enact a law that would probably pay farmers not to grow. Meanwhile, it sounds yeah. like we're getting close to the administration uh, starting the clock on USMCA. What are you hearing? Uh, well, I guess the same thing that you are, that Trump says that he's going to uh, send the, the bill to the floor, or not to the floor, to the Congress. Now, Nancy Pelosi says uh, that she is, is finding that getting support for passing it is uh, less than, uh, you know, it's harder than she expected. Uh and she does sound supportive. I won't say enthusiastic, uh, but, uh, uh, but, but supportive. Uh, so we have to see how that, how that goes. Now, on China, uh, things seem to have slowed down a bit. Uh, it certainly doesn't look like there'll be any meeting with the Chinese leader in Trump this month. Yeah, it seems like they're kind of tapping the brakes on that uh, maybe the expectations got as they do often when it comes to china got out a little too far so uh, i don't know if we should look at that in a negative way or a positive way that they're actually trying to firm some things up before scheduling a summit well under secretary ted mckinney who's in charge of trade says that they're talking every day uh, uh you know by phone and and computer uh, and so they are working on things. Uh, I would, you know, the problems are probably not in agriculture. The problems are probably in, in uh, trying to work out these things under which China doesn't force technology transfer and we have protections for intellectual property from the United States. Meanwhile, it looks like we're getting closer, learning more all the time about the administration's plan to have E15 sales by this summer. It's going to be interesting to see how this plays out, if they can get it done by June. Yes, uh, Andrew Wheeler apparently said yesterday that uh, he plans to make an announcement this week. That's, of course, the EPA uh, administrator. Uh, so we'll have to see, and then we'll have to see if the biofuels industry is satisfied with whatever the proposal is. Yeah, we know that whatever the proposal is, there are going to be people unhappy with it. So there are a lot of uh, a lot of challenges ahead on that. Well, Jerry, thanks a lot. We'll let you catch the train and get to the uh, hearings on Capitol Hill, and we'll talk to you soon. Okay? That sounds great. Always good to talk to you and and to to inform your listeners.
Thank you, Jerry. Take care. Jerry Hagstrom with the Hagstrom Report on his way to Capitol Hill today. All right, coming up, we're going to talk about meat export numbers. Uh, 2018, we had some challenges with all the trade issues, but some uh, positives as well. We're going to go over all those numbers with Dan Hallstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. And then later, we're going to talk with the CEO of the American Soybean Association, and we're going to talk about the ag economy with the director of the Center for Agricultural Law and Taxation at Iowa State University. Busy show ahead. Stay with us here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. Throughout soybean farming regions, growers are going all in on Ingenia herbicide from BASF. They know it's the most flexible and advanced solution of its kind for tough weed control, especially resistant weeds. Now BASF is going all in on Ingenia growers. We're so confident in the performance of this solution, we're now backing it with the Ingenia herbicide weed control guarantee. And this year, you can tap into our expanded season-long Grow Smart Rewards program. Get cash back for making the best agronomic game plan with Ingenia Herbicide and BASF's leading portfolio of soybean solutions. Want stronger performance and profits together with peace of mind? Go to IngeniaHerbicide.com to learn more. Grow Smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, you know, based on all the discussion about trade tariffs and tensions and wars, you would assume that uh, probably all of our export numbers for 2018 would be down. But when we take a look at the numbers, even with all those uh, issues and challenges and hurdles, Really, the numbers uh, we've talked about on the grain side with U.S. Uh, Grains Council, and uh, as we're going to talk now on the meat side, uh, better than you would expect. Dan Hallstrom is with us, president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. And, and Dan, I, when I look at the numbers that you've put out from 2018, uh, they look pretty good, all things considered. Mike, I think you're exactly right. You've summed it up well. Um, you know, all things considered, uh, you know, especially on beef, I'd say we're, we're very happy about how things turned out with uh, records on volume and value as it relates to beef with a little over $8.3 billion in exports uh, in 2018. So well, let's take a look at that. Setting a record on the, when it comes to uh, new highs for volume uh, for beef uh, exports, what fueled that? What were the big markets? Well, I think you got to start with Korea. I mean, uh, Korea on beef was up 43% on the volume and 30%, I'm sorry, 43% on value and 30% on volume. And as it turns out on the pork side, it's really almost the same scenario, up, up over 40%. So you've got an, a good example here in Korea where you have a lot of different things clicking at the same time. First and foremost, demand continues to increase. Per capita consumption is up. The needs for imports are increasing, uh, expanding middle class. And on top of all that, we've got a free trade agreement and the chorus free trade agreement that's working well where we have uh, advantageous inbound duties versus our competition. So 
So Korea is where you start, but there's other markets. Japan, over $2 billion in sales, up 10% this year or in 2018. Uh, you know, Mexico, uh, you know, very large market, is steady. Uh, but uh, with everything going on, you know, with uh, USMCA and all this, I think we're pretty happy with where Mexico's at. So really, in Taiwan's another one, up 35%. Uh, it was a $550 million market last year. You've got a lot of different things working at the same time, which spells success on the beef side. Yeah, a lot of positives in that beef export market. And I guess, you know, when, when we're looking at volume, when we're work, looking at value, even value on a, on a per-head basis uh, was record-setting, right, last year? Correct, yeah. we're Yeah, the value on a per-head basis is about $323 a head. That's up $33 a head from a year ago. We're happy with that. And, uh, you know, but I think there's room for... And, uh, you know, you've got some emerging regions around the world, Central America and South America, that are that are relatively small but growing quickly. So so there's some good things going on. But I don't want to listen to you listeners. There's work to be done, um, especially as it revolves around uh, markets like Mexico and Japan on beef as well, because uh, we are at a disadvantage of the uh, to the tune of 12% versus Australia. So... I think uh, I think this is a good example where we need to uh, uh, engage Japan and get some progress being made on a Japan agreement on agriculture. And uh, uh, I know this is a priority for the administration, and a priority for our industry, but uh, really we can't go without mentioning that. That's very very important for 2019. Yeah, that would have to be. Uh, there are a lot of priorities, a lot of key trade issues here in 2019. But a deal with Japan would certainly seem to be uh, right up near the top of the list. Without a doubt, between beef and pork, it's over 3.5 billion in sales, by far the largest value markets for both species. Uh, and in both cases, uh, we're falling behind on both beef and pork. So. Uh, yeah, this is definitely one of the priorities, and, and I think a second priority definitely is, uh, you know, the, the U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, uh, agreement, the USMCA. Uh, you know, we, we need to get uh, some progress made here as well because uh, we're sitting here today still. We don't have any duties on beef uh, into um, Mexico, but we do on pork to the tune of 20%. So I'd say this is our, our, another another high priority on uh, getting some progress soon. Yeah, let's get into that. We're talking with Dan Hallstrom, President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Dan, uh, our connection is uh, cutting out a little bit on us here, so hopefully it's going to stay strong enough uh, for us to get through here. But I want to talk about pork. Uh, we know we've been hurt uh, with the uh, retaliation from Mexico because of steel and aluminum tariffs. But yet, with all that going on, pork exports did not set a record in 2018, but came pretty close. Yeah, it was our second largest uh, year, uh, just slightly behind 2017, which was the record on volume. So, so all things considered, pork's a little bit the same shape as beef, where with all the rhetoric, you... You might have thought it wouldn't have turned out as well as it did. But, uh, you know, some of the markets that are leading the way, of course, are the big ones. I mentioned Korea earlier. It's the same on pork, a huge year in Korea. Uh, Japan uh, was steady, but on a very good year from a year ago, our largest value market. And, of course, Mexico and Canada, uh, as I just mentioned, very, very key as it relates to uh, uh, um, you know the North American uh, scheme. So, yeah, I think uh, all that being said, um, 
you know, we, we could have been worse. You know, I, I, when I see numbers like this for a year like 2018, it makes me wonder if we'd ever get a year where things were really clicking as far as trade deals and lowering of tariffs. And I wonder uh, uh, what kind of records we could set if the, if all that comes together. Well, Mike, that's, that's a great point. And, uh, uh, yeah, we, the, the one fallout of this that might have been a positive of all the rhetoric is it's forcing us as an industry to look at uh, – Maybe some smaller emerging, you know, regions in Central and South America on the pork side definitely fit that definition. I mean, we're, we're seeing tremendous growth in markets like Colombia, up 39% last year. Chile up 10%. Uh, uh, Central American regions up 16%. So, you know, these individual markets in and of themselves are not that big, but when you add them together, they're significant. So, yeah, if we were to get some uh, winds blowing in the right direction for us on, on the larger markets like Japan and, uh, and China, um, it would really make a big difference, no doubt about it. It also speaks to the demand that's out there, doesn't it, Dan, as far as uh, some of these countries and and uh, these economies, as, as they're able to purchase uh, meat products, there's obviously a, a demand by those consumers in these markets. Yes, it's it's uh, it's a good point. I mean, and it, it all starts with education and familiarity. We do a lot of work in these these emerging markets where we're we're telling our story, uh, we're explaining the. The, the significance of grain feeding, we're, we're, we're explaining the, the differentiation of the cuts and, and, and options in the merchandising realm and things like this. It takes time, but once you start getting some momentum and some familiarity and some comfort, um, you start to see uh, some of the macro factors kick in in these markets. And the reality is that, that economies are increasing, uh, and middle class is expanding, uh, purchasing power is expanding over time. And for the most part, a lot of these countries, their ability to supply themselves is decreasing. Their self-sufficiency is dropping. So thus the need for high-quality, safe imports. And uh, yeah, we're definitely seeing that benefited in some of these uh, smaller, less uh, familiar regions. I also see where Australia is a key market for some U.S. pork products, such as hams. Exactly. Yeah, they've been a, a key player on, 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 on imports of hams specifically for quite a while. And, uh, and it couldn't have been more timely this year because uh, the number one item hit on these retaliatory duties in Mexico has been ham. So I think we've seen a little bit of displacement there where we've seen ham business grow into places like Australia. Uh, as well as places like South America. And uh, this is sort of the beauty of uh, diversifying your market base because uh, then you have some backup plans where some of this product can go that maybe it would not have uh, originally have gone. So that's one of the uh, secret advantages of uh, some of these uh, the, the rhetoric that we've heard the last year or two, and uh, it's forced the industry to diversify, and that's probably a good thing long-term. And also this is good news for uh, feed grains. If, if you have a strong uh, livestock sector and, and livestock ex, and meat exports, that's good for the feed grain sector. Oh, it sure is. It's a good partnership. I mean, uh, the, uh, the reality is that the, uh, that the uh, livestock arena is one of the largest customers for feed grains. So when you compare that base of demand for the livestock with their demand for their uh, grains, 
Uh, it's a double uh, benefactor right. for the grain industry as well. Well, it's good to have some good news, and hopefully we'll have even better news on uh, meat exports here in 2019. Dan, thanks for the numbers, and thanks for the update. Thank you, Mike. Much appreciated. Take care. President and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation, Dan Hallstrom. Stay with us. We're going to discuss the ag economy next here on AOA. You want to make the most of your wheat crop's yield potential. BASF has a full portfolio of fungicides to help, starting with Preaxor brand fungicide. It gives you early to mid-season disease control, stress protection, and improved growth efficiency, which you need for higher yields. Now combine that with Nexacor Zemium brand fungicide for early to mid-season applications, and you've got disease control that helps deliver healthier, greener leaves longer. And more green means more photosynthesis, more grain mass, and potential yield. Now add in Caramba brand fungicide, and you're getting best-in-class head scab suppression plus control of late-season foliar diseases. That gives you a yield advantage over infected weed acres that are left untreated. The fact is with Preaxor fungicide, Nexacor fungicide, and Caramba fungicide all together in one portfolio, you're covered all the way through harvest. That's a winning combination. For more, ask your BASF representative. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, you've probably seen or heard the headlines. Chapter 12, farm bankruptcies have hit highs that have uh, not been seen for many years in some states. And that has caused uh, comparisons to be raised and questions to be asked. Are we headed into a similar situation as we saw back in the 1980s with the ag economy? We're going to discuss that now with the director of the Center for Agricultural Law and Taxation at Iowa State University, Christine Tidgren, joins us. Christine, thank you for being with us. Yes, thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, let's let's kind of get the into these uh, stories and kind of dig a little bit behind the headlines. Uh, are the headlines misleading? Obviously, it's a concern if we're seeing, uh, we know there, the ag economy is down and has has been down for a few years now, and it looks like it's going to take a while to yet to come out of this. But uh, how uh, serious of situation overall, and we know every, every individual operation is different, but when we look at the overall picture of the ag economy here in 2019, uh, what is your assessment? What is the state of the ag economy right now? Well, and I'm not an economist, Mike. I'm on the back end with the with the law and dealing with people who are dealing with these issues. But it seems mm-hmm. like this is we're not in a situation where it's the 1980s at this point um, by any stretch. Um, there are some increases in certain pockets of the country, particularly the Midwest, where we are, of increases in the Chapter 12 filings. But if you still look at the numbers, it's you know we still have relatively low number of farmers who are actually filing for bankruptcy. There are a number of farmers who are feeling the stress that perhaps they haven't felt um, before, and so that's difficult. They're, it's leading them to change their operations. Um, but there are a lot of differences, I think, from the 1980s, and we don't want um, you know to have hype or, or concern that, that things are falling apart because I really don't think we're at that point right now. And the headlines, of course, talk about bankruptcies. Uh, 
not uh, I guess I don't want to say bankruptcies are good, but are, are there ways that certain types of bankruptcy filings could actually be a, a tool to, to help that operation through a tough time? Yes, and, and chap- the Chapter 12 bankruptcy is the chapter that was created during the 1980s crisis specifically for family farmers. And the good thing about Chapter 12, if you're eligible to file it, is it will allow you to um, restructure things, maybe downsize, get rid of some tax debt that you might have that might hamper you from being able to continue your farming operation if you have to sell assets. And if you can prove to the court that you have a feasible plan, a way to move forward and, and pay your debts, perhaps after you've done some downsizing, then you can continue your farming operation and not have to liquidate. So it's a, it's a it's a really good tool, but it has some limitations. I think during this downturn, the biggest limitation that Chapter 12 has is the debt limit. So it's, like I said, it's designed for family farmers, but the debt limit hasn't really been adjusted since 2005. It's just been increased for inflation. And so right now, if your debt exceeds around $4.2 million, you're not eligible to take advantage of Chapter 12, which means if you want to continue farming, you'd have to file under Chapter 11, which is much more complex. That's really designed to uh, be for you know large corporations that we read about in the headlines that are going bankrupt. Um, it's not really designed to help a struggling farmer. So not all bankruptcy options are created equal here, right? Yeah, definitely not. I mean, when when a lot of people think of bankruptcy, they think about the liquidation, which just means basically you're going out of business, you're going to file a Chapter 7, you're going to sell all of your assets, and then whatever's left over is going to get distributed amongst the creditors, uh, you know, according to priority. But that's, you know, that's sort of the bankruptcy of last resort, because what that, that is, is it's the death knell to the farming operation. And so there are, you know, some farm who have had to resort to Chapter 7. And one of the hard things about knowing exactly where we're at is that the statistics, we don't have any way to really see, you know, which Chapter 7s are farmers, which Chapter 7s are just regular non-farming businesses, um, which are individuals, et cetera. So it's kind of hard to know um, just right now where we are in terms of how many liquidation bankruptcies that, that we're seeing. Um, but that is sort of the last resort. Um, what I think one of the things we're seeing right now is farmers who are struggling are just sort of fading out of farming. And so they're sort of looking for ways not necessarily to declare bankruptcy. Hopefully they haven't gotten to that point. But they're just sort of looking for other other ways to make a living. Many of them have already had off-farm jobs. Now they're just sort of phasing out their farming operation, you know, realizing that they're maybe not able to make enough money to sustain it. Um, so we're seeing a lot of that. You know, I think we're getting more people leaving, um, just continuing the trend that we've had. So the headlines can be a little bit deceiving, right? They don't always tell the whole story here. 
Right. I think that's true. I, I don't think, I mean, while we have, in, like I said, a certain state, and, and it's very state-specific because other states in the country, the Chapter 12 filing bankruptcies are, the Chapter 12 bankruptcies are actually down. Um, but again, it, you know, in the Midwest, where we're reliant on, on the dairy industry, and um, we have had downturn in some of our wheat and corn and soybean markets and things, um, we are having... Uh, an increase, um, but I would say the increase is not significant in terms of, of the filings of Chapter 12. Yes, you know, Christine, I don't think we're there yeah. quite yet. Right. We're talking with Christine Tidgren, Director of the Center for Agricultural Law and Taxation at Iowa State University. So when it comes to Chapter 12, Christine, uh, when you have a situation where commodity prices are low as they are and interest rates are rising, like they are now, slowly, but they have been rising, uh, then Chapter 12 may not be a good option for uh, some people looking at it then. Right. So one of the things, if you're going to have a reorganization bankruptcy, which that's the type of bankruptcy where you're able to continue with your business, is you have to show the court that your plan is feasible, right? So with this type of bankruptcy, the goal is to be able to come up with a plan where you'll be able to sort of restructure um, your debt, maybe downsize, sell off some assets, but have enough cash flow to be able to pay off your secured creditors over three to five years. And so if you can't get to a situation where you can show that you're actually going to have cash flow to be able to make your payments under the plan and to be able to keep your business going, then that plan isn't going to be feasible and you're really not a candidate for a reorganization bankruptcy. Um, in that case, you're just more of a candidate if you have to declare bankruptcy for the liquidation, just getting out of the business altogether. As you mentioned, it's different in different parts of the country. Looking at some of the numbers, uh, as when it comes to Chapter 12 bankruptcies in 2018 compared to 2017, the Rocky Mountain area up 56%, the Midwest up 19%, the Northeast up 18%, the Southwest up 13%. Chapter 12 bankruptcies declined, declined by 40% in the Pacific region, 27% in the Southeast. So it kind of reflects... Uh, you know, the the agriculture in different parts of the country, doesn't it? Right, I think so. And if you look at what Chapter 12 is really helpful for, um, if you have too many assets and you need to downsize, then Chapter 12 will allow you to do that in a way where you don't have to pay all of those capital gains taxes that you would otherwise owe as um, um, the, the recapture, which is actually uh, either capital gains on your on your sale of land, or if you're selling you know depreciated equipment, you would have to pay a lot of ordinary income taxes. And that the Chapter 12 gives you options to be able to put the IRS in the same position as any other unsecured creditor and to be able to do that. Well, if your operation is such that you can actually sell off some assets, then you may be a candidate for Chapter 12. Other parts of the country, perhaps maybe they have different forms of operations where um, even the markets that they're facing, you know, they're not facing the same pressure. Um, but it's really those uh, folks that have um, assets they can sell to downsize that they're the best candidates. Um, if, if they are struggling and they own some land of their own, but they could sell off a small parcel, um, you don't need bankruptcy. You know, you can continue. The folks who seem to be doing the best right 
right now are definitely the ones who own land, um, and if they own it debt free, that they're doing they're doing well. Be, you know, much better than their peers who who don't own land or those who bought it, uh, you know, and still owe um, on credit. Um, because, you know, land prices, as you know, just because of the demand for land, they really haven't fallen, which is another thing that really separates this current downturn from the 1980s, because our, our you know, our land price is still strong, which, you know, another category of folks who are struggling more are those who are really dependent on cash running ground, right? Because the land prices are higher, the cash rents have maybe not come down quite as much as you might expect given the weaker markets. And so that's put a lot of financial pressure on those farmers who are dependent on renting their ground as opposed, as opposed to farming ground that they own. Yeah, so there are a lot to the numbers, and as we said, the headlines can be misleading, so we try to look uh, behind those headlines to get a little more depth and uh, perspective on this. Christine, thank you for being with us. We look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for talking with me, Mike. Bye. All right. Christine Tidgren, Director of the Center for Agricultural Law and Taxation at Iowa State University. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk about uh, trade, uh, markets, And the president's budget proposal with the CEO of the American Soybean Association, Ryan Finlay, joins us next on AOA. Powerful. Effective. Proven. Tough. Consistent. Reliable. A lot of adjectives can describe a herbicide's weed control, but one only applies to Liberty Herbicide. Superior. Liberty Herbicide has no known resistance in row crops, more convenient application flexibility, and excellent control of key weeds. All backed by the Liberty Weed Control Guarantee. Learn more at liberty.basf.com. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, lots to talk about with our next guest, CEO of the American Soybean Association, Ryan Finley, joins us. Ryan, thanks for being with us. What do you think of the uh, president's uh, budget proposal for agriculture? Hey, Mike, great to be on and visit with you again. The, the, you know, the budget's the budget from the president. It wasn't very supportive of, of U.S. agriculture, but I think that um, the president's going to put out a budget as a messaging piece, and really our focus needs to be on Congress and what they do. Uh, if we're going to look at a couple of items in that budget, what really concerns us is the, is the swipe at crop insurance and then really the swipe at uh, the Farm Bill Program's price loss coverage and, and agricultural risk coverage or the PLC and ARC programs, and simply because we just finished the farm bill. So we just finished the farm bill, he just signed it, and then his budget within a couple of months aims to, to swipe at that. So yeah, it's a little heartburn, but it's it's just more of a messaging point, so we're not going to get too excited about it. Yeah, I think that's kind of the been the reaction so far for most of agriculture. These proposals uh, are just that, proposals, and we know that uh, they're not going to be the final product. But it is interesting, as you said, the timing, so close to after the – uh, the signing of the farm bill, and we're still in the implementation stage, and then to come out with a proposal like this that would drastically change what just got passed. Yeah, that's the that's the um, interesting part, intriguing part. Uh, it's it's hard to say 
um, where this exactly came from within the administration. I certainly don't think that these are ideas that are being pushed or or advocated for from within U.S. Department of Agriculture. I think the team at USDA is pretty solid in support of agriculture, so it's a little disappointing that we see some of these ideas coming out of other parts of the administration. And, and I, I will say it, it, it does become, it could become some messaging points for others on the Hill that want, as we go through the budget process or the appropriations process on the Hill, to use some of these messaging points from the administration to make a case for, for their argument. So there is some legitimacy to this being brought up again and again and people starting to pay attention to it. So we, we have to uh, be really careful and, and go out there and advocate for some of these programs. And again, I think the ARC PLC and crop insurance are extremely important to farmers across the United States. And this is something that uh, the American Soybean Association has fought for and we're going to continue to fight for. But, um, you know, these are, these are big priorities for farmers. We're talking with Ryan Finley, CEO of the American Soybean Association. Ryan, there seems to be a kind of a tapping of the brakes here on a, a deal with China, maybe not as soon as we thought it might be. It probably is not going to be by the end of this month. Uh, how do you look at that? Are you concerned that there are problems that, uh, that may really delay this a lot longer, or are you optimistic this means they're seriously wanting to hammer out all the final details and not to get out too far in front till they have those things worked out? I think I could join a lot of farmers in saying it depends on the day. My emotions go both ways on this. I, I, I think we have to take the optimistic outlook and say negotiations are ongoing. That's important, and that's critical. So the fact that China and the U.S. have a very strong relationship, economic relationship, it's important to agriculture, and there are clearly some issues with China and how they approach um, capitalism and what they do with forced technology transfer and some of the intellectual property rights issues, um, all of that was brought up in the 301 report from the, the Trump administration, and they're negotiating with China to resolve some of those. So that's really good. However, agriculture continues to talk to people within the administration. We talk to people within USDA. We talk to people within the U.S. Trade Representative's Office. We talk to people in other parts of, of the administration, and, and as the Soybean Association and in agriculture, we're, we're pushing and holding their feet to the fire to say, look, this was supposed to be done March 1, and it's not, and we still have tariffs, and the price of beans are not going the right direction, and farmers' incomes are really struggling. We have to find a solution that's going to rescind the tariffs and get back to, or at least on the path, to a trading relationship with China that's, that's based on market realities. And, and so I, I have to paint those two pictures because, you know, we remain optimistic, but we're also frustrated and we're airing that frustration professionally, but with members of the administration to let them know we're concerned about this. Meanwhile, as the administration prepares to really start the clock on USMCA, and we're hearing about some concerns in Congress that some are having uh, will this be a big push for the American Soybean Association to uh, try to get USMCA across the finish line? Absolutely. I think the American Soybean Association and all of agriculture is putting on the full court press to say, we need this, we need to, we need to move it as soon as possible, but we need members of Congress, both on the House and Senate side, to support this agreement. 
this is big for agriculture. If we if we go back to pre-NAFTA um, and, and look at where we are today, we've grown exponentially with the NAFTA agreement. And are, were there challenges? Sure, there were, there were certainly challenges, and I think some of those, the milk issue and, and maybe a couple of others, were addressed with USMCA. But we have to have a relationship, a trading relationship, that allows products to move easily with our friends to the north and south, and that's certainly what USMCA allows. So you're going to see ASA and a whole bunch of other groups um, make a push on Capitol Hill over the next couple of months to see this through. And I know we will have a number of farmers in Washington, D.C. next week, and that will be a very big talking point that we have on Capitol Hill is that we need to see USMCA pass Congress. All right, Ryan, as always, thanks for being with us. Um, boy, no shortage of, of big issues. We appreciate you being with us, and we'll, we'll talk again soon. There's more to talk about. Uh, we'll stay in touch. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Take care. You too. The CEO of the American Soybean Association, Ryan Finley. All right. Uh, coming up tomorrow, there's a new study out from USDA looking at climate change and beef production. We're going to get the latest on that from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And uh, we're getting details and about to get more details on the uh, E15 proposal for summer sales. Uh, we'll talk with the Renewable Fuels Association about that. So lots going on. We'll keep you up to date right here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. Have a great day, everyone. Soybean growers are going all in on Ingenia herbicide. Now BASF is going all in on Ingenia growers. We're so confident in the performance of this solution, we're now backing it with the Ingenia herbicide weed control guarantee so you can have true peace of mind. And you can tap into our expanded Grow Smart Rewards program and get cash back. Go all in today at IngeniaHerbicide.com. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions.